Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Trauma. We're continuing to learn more and more about how unresolved trauma can harm your health. I highly recommend you take a listen to my conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate after this episode to learn more about how we can release buried emotions. But what about generational trauma or the trauma that gets passed down from your family members? That can be a lot more difficult to treat or even identify. Well, Dr. Thomas Hubble is here to help. He is a collective trauma expert, renowned teacher, author, and currently a visiting scholar at the Wyss Institute at Harvard University. In today's show, he provides fascinating information on how to recognize your trauma symptoms and even heal ancestral wounds. It's Trauma Healing 2.0, and it's an episode you don't want to miss. So the psychiatric term trauma seems to be everywhere. Here in the States, Vox recently wrote that trauma was, quote unquote, the word of the decade. New York Magazine wrote a cover story about, quote, how trauma is America's favorite diagnosis, unquote. And then, of course, there's, quote unquote, trauma talk on TikTok, which I tried not to spend time on. So I'll pause there. What do you attribute to the explosion in trauma? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think maybe first of all, I think it's good to define what trauma is first, and then I will give a framing that relates to your answer. Like if you say trauma is the response of the body in very adverse or difficult circumstances, like when we experience something strongly overwhelming, our nervous system is so stressed out and goes maybe through such a pain or whatever we experience that the, a, a tremendous amount of stress requires us to f- often fragment like a data package of pain or stress, shut it down in order to survive better. And what from that moment on happens is that we experience certain parts of our life as really stressful, even if they are in the moment not that stressful, but every time our trauma gets triggered, like this stuff comes, a lot of stress comes up or like a shutdown. Like if I don't feel anything, I feel distance, I feel disengaged and so on. And I think on the one hand, coming back to your question, I think many people feel that the symptoms that are being described when we talk about trauma match kind of their experience. I think also trauma, also neuroscientifically, is is something that we can that we can measure, that we can kind of connect to in the biological experience so that it's not only psychological issues that we experience, but it's it's literally physical stress, physical dysregulation in the nervous system. And I think that gave us a bit more of a grounded understanding of what happens in us when we go through difficulties in our life, recurrent patterns in our life. 
saying that, I think we also need to be careful that sometimes people use the word trauma too loosely and uh, to, to describe all kinds of stuff that is in our life that is not really trauma. And then, so I think we need to be careful of both. But if we keep both in mind, then I think it's a it's a great way also to see that mental health issues are actually not just mental, but they are very physical because trauma sits in the body and not in the mind. And and so it gives us access through somatic therapy methods, which are growing, like the newer therapy methods are uh, very much body-oriented. And so through the body gives us access and also, I think, more effective ways of treating certain certain symptoms in our life. So a lot to unpack there. Let's go to the stretching of the definition of trauma. What's it what's a real world example of someone claiming they have trauma where in your view it's probably a little bit of a stretch? Because trauma is is um often you we yeah we hear often that people use oh it's my trauma when they're actually saying I go through some discomfort. And not every discomfort we are going through in life is necessarily related to trauma. Sometimes we are simply scared. Sometimes we are angry. Sometimes we are, you know, we, we experience more intense emotions. But not everything is related to trauma. And not every time we experience something uncomfortable, we are being re-traumatized. But it also becomes a hyped word that suddenly everybody gets all the time re-traumatized. Instead of saying, ah, it, there are really moments where people get re-traumatized, where they keep experiencing again and again the strong triggers that reactivate their trauma. And every time that happens, it strengthens actually that loop in the nervous system. And But there are also moments when we simply go through uncomfortable situations and we need to learn to relate to these uh, in a different way. Otherwise, trauma is being used like as a defense strategy against uncomfortable moments. And I think that's that's not what, uh, what the understanding of trauma is about. The other thing, though, is that, and that, that's what I wrote also in my book, is that uh, um, that I believe trauma is, is not just an individual biographical um, issue, our ancestors and the ancestral transmission of trauma and also the collective trauma when societies go through very difficult times like a second world war or racism in the US or something that's persistent and very painful for many people over a long period of time, then then there, there are systemic aspects to, to trauma. And so it's not just only what I experience in my biography that makes it also more or harder to grasp because we re literally carry maybe more fear because our ancestors experienced massive trauma and we carry more stress uh, already as we come into this life. So it's, it's a bit of a blurry line, but still I think we need to be conscious how we use that term. Yeah, I, I agree. And I want to spend a little bit more time on this one because I think it's important. So you use the example, you talked about building resilience, dealing with uncomfortable moments. And oftentimes I'll use the example, maybe there's an uncomfortable moment. Uh, let's just say a minor, a very minor fender bender car accident. Like no one's hurt, fender bender, no big deal, but it's, it's, it's very uncomfortable and it's inconvenient. 
and you got one person who has experiences the accident and then they're saying you know thank god i'm fine all good inconvenient could have been a lot worse than another person same accident maybe the same passenger maybe they're maybe they're maybe they're twins the other person says oh my god this is terrible i can't believe this happened it's going to create so much commotion i, I talked to my therapist and you have two different reactions and not to minimize person number two's reaction because that's their human experience but i think of that example and in my view i think this happens a lot and how much of this the trend of trauma is due to our inability to to build resilience uh to maybe have the right mindset so that our life isn't thrown completely off kilter when we have uncomfortable or difficult moments yeah that's true and and it's also true that for some people that really went through difficult circumstances when they experience something that for us might seem minor for them it is not minor it creates a lot of noise inside so that's why i'm saying it's a blurry line because i think it needs a moment to moment attunement and it needs us to be socially aware enough that we can feel moment to moment whomever we are interacting with and that for one person it might be true that it became like a an easy defense against discomfort and for the other person that the experience is for example a car accident that hits a bit the trauma structure inside for that person it's really they touch a lot of overwhelm and both might be similar both might be saying the same thing but they are actually not saying the same thing and i think but what what you said is very beautiful i think the emphasis should be on on how do we create more resilience how do we create a stronger base and how can we create that as a societal or collective um capacity or also collective longing that we create more resilience in the communities that we're living in and in of course in the individuals but also that we support each other in that and i think for that being trauma informed learning more about the basic aspects of trauma is is really good so how do we do that other than pick up the book attuned which i am showing to the youtube viewers everyone should pick it up it's a fantastic read how, how do we all do that in our everyday life how do we become more attuned how do we become more self-aware more conscious more connected so when when trauma invariably occurs because you know the little t or the big t will happen in our life how do we become better equipped to be resilient right yeah first i think a, a basic understanding of trauma is important that sometimes when we meet somebody and they become very reactive that it's not always personal to us but it's also sometimes it touches parts in them that really touch a lot of stress and it might be disturbing but being able to hold that and not always take it deeply personal is is one step so to have more space and more understanding sometimes when people get very indifferent when they feel distant then we often think oh what's wrong with me that that person doesn't like me but actually they are they are touching in themselves a trauma defense so then or a numbness so that looks like a bit distant and often we take that personal instead of seeing oh that's that's happening in that person but that's not directly related to me it's related to that person's past so there's one thing about understanding trauma symptoms better when we are in our workplaces with our intimate partners when we are with our children obviously and when we are in society as citizens and the next step is 
I can I can practice certain practice like a, a deeper connection to my body, getting to know the stress levels in my own nervous system, getting to know my reactivity and my distancing or absencing, like that I feel numb, that I don't feel connected, that I pull out of relationships. So that I get to know that part in, in myself better. And I learn to notice, oh, I, I'm getting activated. I learn how to use my breath to regulate my nervous system. So I, I'm not just a victim of my nervous system's inner mechanisms, but I can begin to slowly train my nervous system and master those things more and more and more, even if it takes time. I can, I can develop a greater literacy in my emotional experience. When I ask myself multiple times a day, okay, what's the emotion that you feel, that I feel? Then I can say, okay, now I feel a little bit of joy and feel a little bit of, I don't know, anxiety or I feel a little bit of shame or whatever. And I learn to name that because the more I, I practice it, I bring more awareness into my emotional experience. And then, of course, when I'm a bit more triggered, I'm more skilled to operate in that zone of myself. And I will also notice, which in the understanding of trauma is important, when I feel, when I cannot say which emotion I'm feeling, when I'm a bit numb. So when I touch my emotional overwhelm that might have happened many, many years ago, then I don't know what I feel. But that's important because if I notice these things in myself, then I will begin to notice these things also more in others. So I speak to somebody and suddenly I feel the person becomes a bit numb and distant. So I take a break, I take a breath, I wait two, three seconds. I don't keep on feeding data into the system that's already overwhelmed so that we can reconnect to each other. So I think there are many ways how first we attune to ourselves more and then we pay more attention in relationships and we begin because the basic building block of relating is I feel you, like when we are sitting here now, I feel you and I feel how you feel me. And when we both practice, sorry? <laughs> Tell me, what are you feeling? <laughs> no, but, I mean, there are many things I can I can feel if, if I tune into different parts of you, but the basic thing is that I, I feel your presence with me and and how we how there is a connection and a, a flow between us, how you listen to me, how I listen to your questions, and, and that we notice, is there connection, is there disconnect, is there, are you feeling distant or are you feeling interested in, 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 in this conversation? And then I think if we take it more into the trauma therapy, then the attunement goes deeper into what we carry inside as trauma legacy, on that note, in your ability, look, you've been doing this work for decades, in your ability to, to feel energy, which I want to touch on, or, or, or spot trauma, like what, what are the telltale signs for you when you come into direct contact with someone? What do you look for to get a feel for what's going on in terms of their, their trauma? Is that easy for you? Yeah. I mean, as you said, I'm doing this now for a long time and I, of course, 20 plus years he taught me a lot about refining that skill, but there are multiple aspects. So the first thing is I look, when I speak to somebody, I look, uh, okay, how, how are you with me and how much are you open 
in this relational space between us. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we feel very open, we feel regulated, we feel really interested, and we it's like we are we are playing a bit music together. We are in a in a resonant space. Some and then sometimes we talk about something and you feel how one person kind of pulls it looks like they are pulling out of the relational space but actually they are touching something inside often they are not even aware of that that that's happening but suddenly we feel a bit more distant or protected and so there's there's a dynamic in the relational space and then i'm also aware when i sit with somebody okay how relaxed is your body is there a basic stress in your body when we look at the body stress is energy that goes up relaxation is energy that goes down. That's why many contemplative practices, when people sit and they try to meditate and they're thinking all the time, then there is no there is no a use of trying to calm my mind because my mind is producing thoughts because my body is stressed. So that's upward energy keeps my mind busy. But when we begin to settle the stress in our body and I feel that my nervous system is down-regulating stress, then I become naturally more calm, even in my, my mind will relax. And then the meditation is much more quiet. And so when I sit with people and, and I often say my body speaks, like communicates with your body without me interpreting intellectual your body posture. Many people learn at the beginning, okay, if you sit like this, it means that if you hold your body like this. So the the physical information is being interpreted through the intellectual capacity. But what I'm talking about is how when my body is open, then your body and my body communicate directly without Google Translate or Mental Translate. It goes directly. And and the same is the emotions. So if somebody, I sit with somebody and the person gets scared because they touch something more, they tell me about their life and their relationship and suddenly they feel fear. It's like, Ooh. and then say, okay, so let's notice what's the emotion. Let's notice the stress level. And then I feel the stress of the person or their fear. They feel it. And then I often say, because in a collectively hurt world, we privatized emotions. We said, these are your emotions and these are my emotions. Versus when you look at the child, let's say my daughter comes to me and says, daddy, daddy, I'm scared. And then I, some parents respond and say, oh, don't be scared. There's, there's nothing dangerous in the house. So, or we say that to grown-up people sometimes. And then, and then what did I do? I devalued my daughter's emotion. I said, don't be scared, but she tells me I'm scared. And she she comes with an emotional request and I give her an intellectual answer. But the other option would be, I say, yeah, I feel you're scared, come, come to me. So I invite her, when I say come to me, my emotional field meets her emotional field. I feel her fear with her we call that co-regulation. I feel her stress with her. So my mature nervous system gives my child's nervous system a possibility to connect. Then the stress level relaxes. She starts to feel safer. And then I say, okay, let's have a look what really happened. 
and then I can bring in rational leadership and then I or parenting capacity. And then I can say, okay, so is there really a danger in the house? Let's see what's happened. And like that, I I I I bring in my my competence as a parent after I met the need of my child, not before. But if parents are already stressed and their kids have some kind of issues, then it's much easier to say, okay, it's all okay, versus I see you, I feel you, we can ground that emotion. But if a child experiences that over a longer period of time, then co-regulation, finding people that support me, creating resilience together, is like digesting fear and feeling it's safe becomes resilience also. So when I sit with somebody, I often invite people to feel whatever they feel. I feel it with them. And together we create a mutual relational space that co-regulates these emotions and allows the body to relax back and ground itself. And I think if we learn to do this together, when we listen to each other, when we listen to our friends or family members or coworkers, when they are stressed out, then within two, three minutes, when somebody goes through something challenging, or you mentioned the car accident. So when when we say, okay, I hear your stress, I hear that, that it's scary, I hear it's upsetting, and then we calm down first, then maybe in a few minutes, the nervous system can digest the stress and then we can look at the situation again differently. And and I think that's a resilience building relational capacity. Well, I think you're hitting on the larger point. Energy is contagious. And if we're if we're matching someone's maybe frenetic energy, it's not helping the situation. And that's a great parenting advice. Then I come to think of, okay, trauma is a big issue. A lot of people are experiencing trauma. A lot of them are going to therapists. Many of them probably do not have the experience that you have in dealing with trauma. Probably some great therapists, probably some therapists that aren't so good. Maybe in in your view, is traditional therapy kind of missing the mark here? Is that a problem? The way I look at it is the success of therapy lives with the capacity of the therapist. It's not so much the modality, it's more the maturity, the ripening, the skill, the experience, and also, I believe very strongly, the relational openness. And, and the more we learn about trauma, we know trauma doesn't get resolved by just talking about it. So if therapy means that we become more reflected intellectually what kind of issues we have in our life, that's of course important because somebody helps me to see my own patterns better. But And then people say, oh, yeah, but I still have that pattern. And then the still is an interesting word. What does it mean still? And so it means that I, I, I might say, yeah, but I know my patterns. But actually, no, we don't. We we know it partly, but the part that we can't feel doesn't resolve because trauma sits literally in the physical body, in our emotions. And so if if therapy can include the somatic dimension of it, then I think it's great. If it means that we are talking about our issues, it's partly great too because it's better than not, but it's not going to get to the to the real transformation that that sometimes is lacking. And so the relationship capacity of a therapist, I believe, is key. And 
that we all know that anybody that works with clients can walk with their clients only as far as they walk themselves. So where I carry trauma, I cannot feel you fully. Where my nervous system is open and integrated, I can get a lot of data if if you were to tell me something about your life that you want to look at. And so we can go together deeper and find maybe the origin of where, why that symptom resides in your life. But if you carry some trauma that I also carry, I cannot go to that route because I didn't go there myself yet. And so for every therapist, it's not only what do I know about psychology, what do I know about therapy, it's also how far did I integrate my own issues. So that integration means that my nervous system can open up again and really be relational. What are some questions or maybe some telltale signs for someone who's considering therapy for trauma or already in therapy that they should maybe ask their therapist or maybe some signs that are an indication that they're maybe not the best fit for the type of work they need? First of all, to open that topic up and and make it transparent with the therapist, like that we are looking for that skill. And if the therapist has some training, of course, because it needs also some training, that that's one thing. And the other thing is like that, I think therapy lives from the fact that, that we create a safe relationship with our therapist. And that the, the safer is the relation. What is safety? When we feel safe, I feel you, I feel you feeling me, creates safety. We call this neuroception. So when we feel felt, we feel already safer. But when we feel safer, our nervous system wants to detox our past, the stuff that resides in us. So trauma comes up when we feel safer. So then the way how we digest that trauma creates more safety and then it opens up even more so then more trauma comes up and as we go deeper like that we create more and more resilience more and more groundedness we create more closeness and intimacy in the therapeutic relationship so when i feel with my also my therapist that i actually grow we grow together into more and more safety that's a very good sign because then I feel that I feel held, but then I might feel again unsafe with my therapist. But if my therapist can hold that with me, it creates even deeper intimacy. So we are going through waves of disruption and coherence, disruption, coherence. And so that makes us more connected. And so that's also a sign, what's the quality of relationship with my therapist? And can I bring anything that I want to bring to my therapist and discuss it with them? So asking for how how they see trauma, how they relate to trauma, how they work, if they include the somatic dimension, that's something we should discuss with them. And to look at like what's the underlying quality of relationship and what's also the progress that we have over time together. It's not that we always have major jumps, but there's some kind of progress visible. I like the progress piece because something I've thought about with regards to therapy, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I run a business. I, I like setting goals. And so I've always thought about this idea with a therapist at some point, maybe not from day one, but it, during during the, the that relationship, I think it's fair to say, okay, 
what's the 20, what's the year plan or 18 month plan? Like what's, what's the result going to be? How long do we need to do this? Otherwise in some relationships, it can go on forever and the therapist becomes an enabler and it's a weekly revenue stream. It's unfortunate to say, but that's the reality. Right. It's also that we see that like some kind of maturation process is happening. The maturation process is not always linear. Like when we create a business and we set goals, it's often a more linear process. The But I think there is some progression that we can see that more and more autonomy uh, and, and kind of own resting of the client in themselves is is visible over time so that there's less and less need and dependence but the dependence by a independence becomes interdependence and i think if we can see that cycle of individuation and maturation i think that's a good sign for for some progress it doesn't always mean that it needs to be linear because sometimes these processes are more circular they have a different dynamic but that we see oh my life's slowly changing my life is is upgrading i feel that i be more grounded i'm more let's say autonomous in my life i yeah, i'm not and and a very important thing is that my questions are changing it's not that all my questions are being answered. My therapist is not here to answer my questions, but my therapist is my partner in answering my questions myself. So that somebody helps me to find my own internal answers and that my questions are changing. I often, I also work as a supervisor for, for coaches and some therapists. And I often say when you're coaching clients are coming back with the same questions, then something doesn't work. If they come back with different questions, then you see an evolution through the questions. You see the evolution of their life. That's great. And so more and more uh, capacity to resolve their own life matters. And we are not stuck on the same thing for a long time. Then, then something is we need to look. And I think also the message here is one of personal empowerment in the same way if we're seeing a medical doctor for something which which is going on, you can't just 100% rely on the doctor. And I think it's also safe to say you just can't 100% rely on the therapist. You need to become educated. You need to do do the work. No one's perfect. No one is, you know, even though some doctors have God complexes, they're not God, so to speak. And you have to take some responsibility here and become educated. Yeah, I want to come back to this idea of storing our trauma. How does the storage of trauma show up? What are, what are some of the symptoms in our body that we should be looking out for? There are different layers of storage. So one is that the physical body stores trauma. It's like we could say, let's say we have a very open conversation and we're having fun and everything is kind of flowing and easy. And then we begin to talk about something and you can feel Sometimes in, let's say in a client now, like as if there's a preformed structure that shows up inside. So that has an element in the body, the solar plexus gets tight, the throat gets tight, the heart gets tight, whatever. They, they feel or tension in somewhere else in the body. So you begin to notice that from one second to another, you feel, oh, my heart's closed. But that the heart didn't just close now. We just begin to feel something 
that maybe happened when that person was three years old. But the person touches a preformed quality. So life is not anymore emergent and present. It's coming out of what's happening now. We, we begin to feel symptoms that reside in ourselves for often for decades, but now it, it is here. Then I feel very stressed. And so my stress level goes up. And then I feel fear. But often we feel fear or chronic anxiety or whatever when there is no danger really around. But it overshadows my experience. I, I envision a meeting. I'm thinking 10 times, how should I say and what should I say? But I feel that I'm, I'm, I'm connected to stress that is stored in my body, not stress that is connected to the next presentation in the board meeting or the next presentation, I don't know, in the university. But or public fear of public speaking. So I, I, I feel very stressed to give a talk, but that stress has nothing to do with the talk. But it looks very real. My whole system tells me I'm afraid of giving that presentation. And so we look at, okay, what when we think about it and it triggers something, then we have a chance to get to know the physical aspects because this is a process that I'm, tension is, a, is actually not tension, it's tightening. And or numbness is not numbness, it's numbing. It's an active process that started when I was three and is still going on in my nervous system as a process ever since. So when we direct the awareness of our consciousness into that place that is doing the numbing ever since, we can change it. But often we are looking at numbness as, a, as if it was a noun or there's some muscle tension. But it's not a muscle tension, it's a muscle tightening. It's a verb, it's a process. And becoming attuned to that process is like you find the light switch in a dark room and then you can turn the light on. But as, as long as you don't find that button, you cannot turn the light on. And so maybe one, one more thing is when, when two people's nervous systems, like it's like two computers, when they hook up and we feel each other, we enable each other to connect to those unconscious processes with a much higher probability. That's why that's also a principle why, why a healing relation is so key to any kind of modality because a nervous system that is open can support a nervous system that is more closed to feel that. And the same thing is true for the emotional dimension. It sounds like to me that there's a lot going on here. And look, we're mind, body, green. One word, not three. We believe that mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well-being are all connected. And it feels like the work we're talking about is hitting literally on every pillar. Mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental. Gotta do all of it. You can't just do talk therapy. I, I completely agree with you. I think all of it, we are individuals, we are ecosystems, we are mind, body, they are not separate. They are only separate in a traumatized world. Otherwise, mind and body are not separate. They are one flow. They are one data stream. Our world is traumatized. It, it, there's definitely some collective trauma due to the pandemic, due to due to lots of, I don't think there's one thing. And I, I look at, particularly here in the United States, the decline of our health, lifespan has gone down for the first time in a long time. And sure, we're, we're not exercising as well. Sure, we're not eating as well as we could. 
but where I go is loneliness, collective trauma. And I think we're, we're starting to see more attention focus on, on our lack of connection and how that's impacting our long-term health. You know, the, being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's worse as having six drinks a day. That's 42 drinks a week. And you see, those are real studies. You see those studies and it starts to hit home. So in my view, yes, we got to eat right. Yes, we need to exercise. But our lack of connection is playing probably the most significant role in the decline of our well-being. What, what's your take? Yeah, first of all, very much yes to everything you said. And at the root of loneliness is trauma. At the root of numbness and isolation is a defense mechanism that protected us from pain. And I think one one aspect, so first of all, I think that's true. Once we are caught up in, in that loop, and many other people might be too, so then the data connection, attunement, we talk about attunement between us, that's a flowing data connection. When we are attuned, we don't feel lonely because we feel the connection is happening. And when we are, when we cannot attune, it doesn't mean that there is, or when we're not, not at all, but when it's reduced, then it doesn't mean that something wrong is happening. We just need to reframe our relationship to what we call sometimes dysfunctional. When I'm lonely or alone means I learned in the ecosystem of my family, of the education system of society to protect myself in pulling my energy inside and protecting my sensitivity, protecting myself from overwhelm, from all kinds of things. So this might look like, wow, today I'm suffering because of that. But the intelligence that did that was amazing. For many kids, the, uh, protecting themselves in, in ecosystems where there's domestic violence, there's emotional violence, there's alcoholism, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of neglect, and kids are not being you know, nurtured and nourished. That happens very often. So it's everything we find in ourselves that is that we call weakness dysfunction i want to get rid of this part of myself i would be so much better off without that is these are all intelligence functions that we do not understand anymore even in ourselves and that's why it seems like it's happening to me i feel lonely looks like it's happening to me and so we need some guidance on the one hand, how to reframe that. I think we need to reframe all these assessment tools. So these are your strengths and these are your weaknesses. When you look into the business world, you get a lot of these assessment tools, which on the one hand is, is, is interesting to create some basic awareness of, of how I interact with the world, but it splits humans into these two categories. And I don't think that that's helpful, but that we... I learned to see, uh, for an example, let's say a child gets hospitalized when the child is three years old. So, and the parents cannot be with the child. So the child is alone in a hospital. That's an existential crisis. That's a very scary thing to go through. So when the child's alone, the tremendous amount of fear that comes up in the child is so overwhelming that shutting that down 
is intelligent. But when I shut my fear down, I need to shut the part of my body down. It's like when you see a city at night and you turn off the electricity in a quarter of the city. So it goes dark. So not feeling my body when I'm a grown-up person and I run a company, for example, and then I'm often indecisive. I'm afraid to take decisions. And then I have a hard time having a gut feeling around my decisions that I take. And I overthink, I over-intellectualize, I need a lot of data because my basic gut feeling, okay, now we are going there. Why? Because I feel it. And this gut feeling is missing. But as a three-year-old child shutting down part of my body awareness was intelligent. So re-relating to that process that happened helps us to get connected, see the intelligence, honor it, and then that part of the body can be turned on again. The fear can be digested because today we are much stronger than as a three-year-old and we can change. And that kind of integration process for many people is very important, but gets often stuck in the pathologizing of certain parts of ourselves. And that always doesn't allow us to create a deeper intimacy with ourselves. So I think that's one thing that we can do individually, but we need to do as a society too. So as I think about the the overall catch-all bucket of trauma, I think of, you know, the big T, you know, being neglected as a child, you know, real tragedy, loss, list goes on. I think of the little T, which happens all the time. And then there's generational trauma, which we all have. I think the big T trauma is probably easier to identify. I think we all know you've experienced that for the most part. Maybe there's something buried from our childhood, which maybe requires some more work. But generally, I think most people understand if they have it. Little T, I think it's generally accepted now that like trauma every day. But then I think about the generational trauma. I say to myself, wow, how do I really understand what happened to my mother or father or, or grandparents? And what I'm th- that requires a whole nother layer of, of work, which is maybe impossible. Maybe your parents or grandparents aren't around. Maybe they're just not sharing. How do we identify that? And I'm curious, is, does that hit different? Does that show up different? And just what's the work required to even understand what we're we're dealing with if you're you're relying on someone else's information, that's even possible. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's it's a complex question. There's not just a simple answer, but I will try to frame it in a short way so that it's sufficient for now for this conversation because that would make it a whole conversation. Amazing. Itself. Well, everyone's going to buy your book, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's very important because I believe psychotherapy very much focused or in a on, in the mainstream version of it, like focused on the individual development, which is also important, the attachment and the psychodynamic process. But I think it's embedded in in a in an ancestral context that our, only because our parents were traumatized, they neglected us, or they hurt us, or they hit us, or they whatever, and so. The trauma is not a standalone thing. There's not my trauma and then there's the ancestral trauma, but it's kind of a continue a continuum. It's like a it's like a whole spectrum of trauma or a web of trauma. And so of course we 
Another a little bit of science. We collaborate also with scientists at the Zurich University. She's an epigenetic scientist. And she could show in her mice experiments when a, a, a pup like gets separate separated from the mother for a certain time. So the mouse develops like some kind of attachment trauma. Then the next five or six generations express the same trauma symptoms like that mouse, but they never had that separation. So there's something in the epigenome, there are epigenetic changes that are being passed on with the sperm cells because they check this with uh, male mice. And so the sperm cells transmit a change so the next generation has more fear, has more stress, has certain symptoms. When they did some kind of therapy after some time with the mice, that transmission stopped. So that's very that's very interesting because it also means, and I see it also here where I live now in, at the moment in Israel, I see like the second generation Holocaust survivor, third generation Holocaust survivor family there is. You, we can literally see the trauma transmission through the generation. That's just an example that's anywhere in the world. And so coming back to how to how to look at it, like when we can look at it, of course, we, we all might have, I don't know, heard from our parents or grandparents about their stories. But as you said, some generations didn't share anything, especially when hard stuff happened. The, the shut, it was shut down so much that people didn't want to talk about it. And that kind of silence is also very strange for the next generation to grow up in. So we might not have the intellectual data that we need in order to track our the trauma of our grandparents. And some some people don't even know their ancestors because they didn't live anymore or whatever, they, or they were adopted. So what we do in our work, when we look at the ancestral dimension of trauma, we completely follow the intelligence of the body because I believe when we look at our nervous system, we often see our nervous system as a kind of an individual thing. My nervous system is minor and like a personal property and it's me. But I think that that's not true. The nervous system is individual, of course. It encodes all, for all the information that belongs to my life. And but I believe I have a, an ancestral nervous system that encodes the information of our ancestors. And we have a collective part of our nervous system that is able to communicate with the collective nervous system. So that our nervous system is much more complex than just a person. And so when we sit with each other, and I think ancestral work we can do to a certain extent on our own, but I think we need a bit of an ecosystem and a bit of a guidance. So then we can go through our body and connect to our ancestors and listen to the information that shows up physically, emotionally, maybe also mentally in us when we do that. Sometimes at the beginning, it might feel like I don't feel anything, but that's also information. So, and then like a scanner, we go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I have seen many people that started at the beginning, like, okay, how do I do this? I have no idea. But when we stay with it, we, we begin to create relationships. And we often do it in a way that we say, okay, let's start with the ancestor that seems the closest, the most open to you. Like I had a grandmother that really loved me or I had a grandfather that I felt very close to. So start with that person and, and then begin to, if that person exists, for some people that doesn't exist. So then 
But if it exists, and we call that the gate, the gate into our ancestry, and from there we begin to expand because it wakes up a part of our nervous system that we didn't learn to use really, because often in Western education, that's not in the center of our awareness, so we didn't use that. But we can, and I, and I think, for example, the once, it's just a practical example, and I have seen many of those, like I worked with a client and she, there was something stuck in the family system. So we, we did that work and came out that part of the family was estranged. They didn't talk to each other for 30 years. And so we, we went there, we, some movement happened, something started to integrate itself. She felt like more energy, she felt more opening. In that same night, she got an email from exactly that part of the family, and they didn't have any contact for 30 years. So I've seen in family systems, like when we do the ancestral work, often the fragmentations and the polarizations in family systems begin to move as well. So new relations are being formed because somebody does the work to open part of that stagnation and then it could, the, the system can reorganize itself because trauma is a disorganizing function and integrating trauma is an organizing function. And this one generational trauma with I think I struggle with the most. I do acknowledge it's a it's a real issue. And I think look, anyone needs to can go back one two three generations and we're hitting on the world wars, great depression, numerous other events in our world that you know, created real, real trauma. So we all have it. But then I think about, okay, we, we believe in empowerment. We believe in epigenetics, this idea that you can turn on and off genes. I've said this a million times in the show, but I'll say it again. I'll, I'll be 49 in a month. Met in my family have a terrible track record with longevity. Father died of heart disease at 47, and then my two other grandfathers died uh, 44 and 49. But my view is, you know, stops with me. I believe I can change my genes. This this stops with me, and so I think most of our listeners believe in this idea of empowerment. You know, everyone, and I'm not unique. Everyone's got something in their family: you know, dementia, heart disease, cancer. We all have it. And so, with that said, with generational trauma, my view is okay. It's really important, but wow, there's something there, and I don't even know how, how I'm going to go about this, and I don't have the time or the resources. And uh, just to close the loop on that, what, what do you say? Because this, one, this one's very real, but it's also very complex. Any other thoughts on what to do? I think it's also complex because for many people, it's a bit new also to say, okay, let's, let's engage our ancestral trauma. And it's not at all that we have to resolve everything that our ancestors went through. We, we only resolve that which impacts us in our life the most and creates symptoms in our life. So sometimes the symptoms in our life are not just coming from our biography, but they are coming from a wider context. And so, of course, we need to do some individual work to create some individual resilience, but then often it opens up because it's interdependent and the ancestral dimension starts to come in naturally. And I believe when we stop viewing people as separate kind of separate boxes like this is the person but that the person is actually a much bigger flow 
and that the person is also, as you said before, is not just separate from the ecosystem, but the ecosystem and the person, they belong together. It's nature is not around me, nature is through me because I'm also nature. And, and I think when we, it looks maybe a bit bigger because it's more abstract at first, but I've seen many people once they had an experience of their ancestral stream, and we know we don't have to resolve everything because that's also not our job. But the symptoms in our life can cease. And I believe ancestral work is deeply empowering because we didn't inherit from our ancestors only the trauma. We inherited a lot of intelligence. Like mo many of the things that we express in our life as gifts and purpose and beauty, they are coming from our ancestors. That's intelligence that has been given to us because many generations got traumatized and trauma also healed in former generations. It didn't heal just now. Now we maybe talk about it differently. But that resilience that you said many generations ago, there were big traumatizations and people survived that. People built their new life and there is resilience. So it's it's coming both, but I, I believe in order to change, like get it deeper, and also an accelerated view on healing. I think individual ancestral and collective work is needed and also collective spaces quicken also the individual healing process. I think that that's also true. So how does one go about finding a therapist who's skilled at generational trauma work? I think like in many things, we, if we want something more specific, we also need to put the energy into the search and begin to, to inform ourselves. And uh, not every therapist might agree with what I said. So that's, that's how I look at it. And maybe other people see it differently. But I also see, let's say in our courses, we don't teach the therapy method, we, we teach relational skills, how to relate to individual ancestral and collective dimensions. And many people that come to us, they are already therapists and they increase their relational uh, and attunement capacities. And I see in our courses that are pretty big, like so many therapists that are interested in including this ancestral just we in the last fall and this spring we finished we had a large course on ancestral healing and there was so much interest and there are many people that really picked it up and i think also through the decolonization work that's happening the indigenous wisdom all around the world is re re-empowered and it's not that we invented all of this. Indigenous traditions and mystical traditions carry a lot of knowledge about ancestral work. And so since that's kind of rising, more and more people accommodate that in their work. And I think there's a very positive development to include ancestral and also collective trauma became a buzzword uh, that that's on the rise. And that's very good. So if somebody wants to find somebody, I think we there are more and more people that see that as important. So I think that's very hopeful. Let's definitely get, get a link in the show notes to your, to your course for everyone. Maybe we'll do a promo code or something. We can offline about that. Uh, you know, you mentioned experience and I think a 
medically medically assisted psychedelic therapies. I think of ketamine, I think of microdosing. What, what's your view on some of it? And I always, I always preface with medically assisted. I think the message is just don't, you know, fly to South America and get, you know, find the taxi at, take a taxi to the airport and say, get me to a shaman. I don't think any, you know, this is serious. You should do it under medical supervision. With that said, what, what's your view on some of those treatments to help unlock some of that ancestral trauma and trauma in general? Yeah, uh, that's also a more complex question. I know. I know it's a big question. I can get up. Um, you give it, try, try a short answer if, if that's possible. I think it's like, these are great questions because these are very important questions of our time because it's very popular at the moment. I again think that I, it's not my, the core of my work. So it's, we are not working uh, with psychedelics in, in our work. So I'm, I want to say this. So I'm not an expert on psychedelics. The way I look at it, though, is that it's twofold. Western society has a consumerism virus, and and everything that ends up in infected by that virus because we are privileged. Many people are privileged, have the means, have the time, so we can consume that in order to grow and quicken our growth. Sometimes faster is better and in the in the trauma healing work faster is not necessarily better it's it's good to be attuned and to be attuned to what an organism can take and integrate and digest and that's the fastest way however fast that is and so speeding that up is not always beneficial and for some people it can have severe side effects to speed that process up and of course, some people, sometimes there are skills missing or and then you get stuck. So that's the other side. And so I think if it's done well and there are attuned therapists that are really relationally available, then, this, then the substances are disarmoring or disarming some of the defense mechanisms. And that makes it easier to touch deeper places inside. And so... If that's done well and with people that have the competence to hold those processes, then if for some people it really um, has advantages because it, it gets them in touch with parts, especially when there are strong, strong symptoms in their lives and they tried already many things, it, it can give a kick of, oh, it's possible and it's an empowering, it's an empowering process. And I think if it's, again, if it's, I am very much about attunement because once we are in tune with life the organism tells us what it needs it's not that i know everything about my clients i don't need to know everything because they know everything about themselves that they need and i'm attuning to that um, internal intelligence and that also gives me the limits that gives me how much we can open how much we cannot open and so on and i think we need to take that in into account and so I think there's a, there can be a positive effect. And at the same time, it's also important that we know good developmental work takes whatever it takes in order to lead into maturation. And that just having it 
faster is not always better. And I think if we can respect nature in that sense, then there are definitely sometimes advantages, especially for some people. And maybe for some people, it's not recommended to do that because of their internal structure. They might need something else. So it's in, in that range, maybe. If you give a short answer, there's more to say. I really love the answer given the complexity of it. So, you know, you, you keep on coming back to attunement. The title of the book is Attuned. What are, say, three things that everyone can do in their everyday life to become better attuned? I think many people love music. When you listen to whatever is the music that you love, when you listen to music, you're attuning naturally. You're with the, with the music. Whenever somebody dances, you're already attuned to music. So the, the process of attuning is so integral, so inherent to our human nature. We're all wired relationally. We are mammals. So we are, our nervous system is an attunement instrument. So it's not something foreign. When we walk into a room and we feel how's the atmosphere, how are people doing? We are tuning to the room. So everybody does it anyway. So it's nothing groundbreaking new. The only thing I suggest in the book is that we can train that capacity and maybe free it up. So do integration work and training that we can use that more consciously and bring more joy into our life, more colorfulness, more richness, more also deeper satisfaction not just from superficial things but from deep connections from deep moments and um, be connected more to our own essence so that's one thing attunement is nothing foreign it's nothing groundbreaking new but we can refine it the second thing is attunement starts with my body it starts with me so I, I practice i can take a breath i can connect to my body get to know my inner world begin to travel through my world, five minutes, 10 minutes, I can get to know my emotions more, my own mental activity, my stress levels. So I, I, I train when I have five minutes, 10 minutes, instead of surfing the internet on my phone, I sit down and I practice attunement to myself and see what's there without trying to change it. And also in the book, I, I describe some exercises that we can do every day or every time when we have time. And the other part is, when we talk to each other, the simple principle of I feel you and I feel you feeling me. And even if you don't feel me, but then I'm at least aware of that fact. I feel the relational dimension. And then when I listen to my friends, people that tell me stuff about themselves, I feel them and I see, can I get deeper into their experience, which might be different than my experience? Because often we assess other people according to how we see it. But attunement is also that I open up and say, I don't know about your life. I find out with you together. And I'm also a bit in a state of not knowing and not, I know the answer for you. And that gives, that opens my space to find out. And that's also an important part of attunement. And maybe the, the third part is that we all have also an ecosystemic attunement. We know this, I think, or many of us might know this when you go through nature and you go through a forest, like, and you get the feeling that has so many dimensions. It's the smell, it's the fresh air, it's the plants, it's the whole system. You, your whole body resonates with nature because you, our body is nature. And so 
when we walk into social spaces, we get the atmosphere of the room, if it tends, if it's open, if it's fun, if it's short. Like we get many aspects and to practice that, to practice that again and again and again, to develop the skill of our social attunement capacity. But that's important because, for example, if I run a team meeting, if somebody is in a room that fills the room, the room is held in a different way. If more people in a team have that capacity, it's even held more. So the presence and the attunement capacity creates a certain level of coherence. I think on the long run, that's a, a great tool for like efficiencies of teams. Also, how people are present with each other when they drop out, when they come back. And so that there is more awareness uh, in, in meetings holds the, the energy of a room better. And it also, because sometimes, like, let's say I, I ask somebody on my team, can you please do this and this until tomorrow? And the person says yes. And, and tomorrow or the day after I ask, hey, by the way, did you do that? And the person, oh, no, I forgot. And then it might be, ah, the person didn't do it. But maybe when I asked the person, I didn't feel that the person doesn't really register that information. They said yes, but it didn't really land. So attunement is also part of a, a kind of a, like a, a feedback mechanism in social systems that it's not just that the responsibility is always on two sides, the ability to respond. And if I had seen that earlier, I would say, I take a break and I ask the person, okay, so can we agree that by tomorrow we need that for the meeting? So I reiterate that instead of letting it go because I felt, ah, I'm not sure if you heard that. And and that creates also in, in organizations, for example, better workflows because we all have a higher level of social awareness. And I think that's very good for, for many uh, work processes. Very sound advice and reminds me of what my mother would say to me when uh, you know there was potential when there was conflict in in a relationship uh, before I got married. Of course, she would say it takes two to tango, <laughs> and I think about that. There's, there's the good and the bad. It takes if, you're, if there's going to be a serious conflict, it takes two to tango. Always a good reminder. You know, of, of all the science, of all the research, all of all those studies you've come across over the years, I'm curious: is there is there one that really stands out to you? Yeah, I think the the one that I mentioned before about the epigenetics, we are running in our, one of our training programs right now and a two-year epigenetic study on the reverse of it, like how people that go through our two-year program can change their epigenetics. We will know by the beginning of next year uh, what's the result. But so I, I find the epigenetic transmissions uh, very interesting. And, um, and so like that, that really... Because if we were able to show that we can reverse those changes, we can actually reverse part of the information that we were born with, that would be groundbreaking. That through our inner work, we can change the, the data that we were born with, which I deeply believe is true because I see it often in the groups. But that whole epigenetic research, uh, I think, is very very interesting and although it's still early um 
I think it's a it's a great field of research amongst others, of course. It is. Please keep us posted on the results. In closing, let, let's pretend you have a billboard on a major freeway in the United States where you could put anything on that billboard. What would you put on your billboard to you know to get your message out? <laughs> That's a great question. What would I put on that billboard? I think I would put something. I would need to think about this deeper, but I would put something on that billboard that uh, represents like how powerful is the remedy of relating to heal ourselves, be part of the healing of other people and be part of a restorative process of our world. Like that the power of us really listening to each other, really attuning to each other, however we would represent that, like that displaying the power of relationality uh, for a better and more fair or a world respecting human rights um, is is what I would find an expression for. I don't know how that visually would look like, but I think that's, that's uh, what I would emphasize. I think we got the gist of it. And is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on or something you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, a little bit what I said right now, because I think sometimes we think about trauma as poor, it's because the nature of trauma is overwhelming too much. So when we talk about it, that comes up. So it's like something we don't want to deal with. But there are two things. One is we all are the remedy. The, the power to relate and to strengthen relationality in our life and being connected in, in healthy communities, that ecosystem is so important. And you said it before yourself, how, how important that is uh, and how it's the remedy for loneliness that has all kinds of detrimental effects. And, um, and so how we all contribute to creating those healthy communities and that we know we are that's why I called the book in the book I used the title in the title the word interdependent because what we give into the ecosystem is what we are going to breathe or what we are going to drink when we put a lot of toxins into the water we will live in a toxic water and if we put a lot of compassion clarity generosity togetherness relationality if we offer ourselves generously to the world so then there is a more generous ecosystem because we are building, we are all ecosystemic too. And, and I think that's, that's amazing. We are all the remedy and uh, we, we can contribute to the healing of the world because otherwise the world seems, the trauma of the world, like while we are talking here, there's a war, go, there are wars going on and so many people get traumatized. So we can say, well, what, that, that's simply overwhelming. Yeah, but nobody needs to do it alone. We all need. We all are an orchestra. Nobody needs to play the symphony alone. That's too much. But we are billions of people. So I think there is a power in this collective process, and I believe we are going into an era of collective healing. We will develop more and more tools how to speed up healing in collective architectures or spaces, and I'm very hopeful about that. Amen. Thomas, thank you so much. Mm, thank you. And thank you for having me. I appreciate the conversation and the great questions. So thank you. <laughs>